Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Welcome back, everyone. Super excited to have you guys here with me again for another episode of the Financial Residency Podcast. Today, we are going to be doing another curbside consult. But unlike the other curbside consults I've done in the past, this time you won't actually hear listener questions in their own voices. Today, I'm going to be reading the questions from the most recent panel that I was on, and it was with the New England Journal of Medicine's Financial Planning 101 series that they invited me and, and Dr. Jim Dahl and a couple other people to be on as experts. I thought there were so many great questions on there that I'd like to read several of them and give you guys my answers. And I'll also link to you in the, in the show notes the discussion URL so you can go there and, and read all the questions because I won't be doing all of, all of the questions, but I'm going to be picking out some of my favorites that I think are beneficial, ones that I've been asked a lot. And I think you guys would all benefit from hearing. Also, before today's show, I want to make sure to announce this important disclaimer. I am a fee-only financial planner and a fiduciary for my clients. But let's be honest, I don't know you or anything about you. This show is for educational purposes only and shouldn't be taken as legal or financial advice. Please consult your attorney, CPA, or your fee-only financial planner before you take any action or make any important financial decisions. And now it's time for the curbside consult. So our first question is all around opportunity cost. With many physicians delaying life until they begin earning a physician's income in their early 30s, do if financial advisors advocate delaying paying off the debt, how do you approach student loan debt among all the other pressures to do all of the other things that they want to do in life? So I think this was a great first question to start off with because honestly, I get this question all the time. Essentially, it's, can I pay off my student debt while saving for retirement or vice versa? And then also kind of saving for some of the other fun stuff in life that you basically have been putting off since you've been in training for so long. I get this question so much. I literally wrote a white paper. It's like 25 pages long. You can go to financialresidency.com, scroll about halfway down the page, and you're going to, it'll say download now. It's a little ebook. I encourage all of you to check out that if this question kind of rings true for you. So looking at the biggest stressors in young physicians' lives, it really comes around student debt and this notion of saving for retirement or saving for your future. And I think you honestly can work towards both of these simultaneously. I don't think you have to pick one or the other. Look, if we always had to pay down debt before we invested, no one probably would save anything. So I think you can do this together or both of these together simultaneously. Most residents, they finish with some credit card debt. And I know it's not ideal, but it's a reality, especially if you're married and have kids and your spouse might may or may not be working or they're working part-time. Credit card debt is almost inevitable. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to tackle that high interest debt first. I know everyone's financial lives are different. So here are kind of five steps that I outlined um, in, the, in the panel discussion that you can follow and hopefully this will help you out. Step number one is to determine if you're going to take advantage of the public service loan forgiveness or PSLF or not. And if you're not, 
and you're in a secure job, then you're going to want to shop around for the best rates and terms to refinance your loans. We're currently in this really ultra low interest rate environment. You should be able to refinance your debt at 5% or below in a fixed rate. Please do not take out a 15 or a 20 year note, fixed note to pay off your debt. I understand that there's things that come up in life that you want to do that you've delayed, but let's pay off your debt before your kids hit college. So ideally, I would say don't go any longer than 10 years if you're going to refinance your debt. If you're staying in the PSLF program, great. Use the NSLDS calculator and determine what your current and your expected future payments will be. And the important part there is the future payments because in residency and during training, you weren't paying very much because you weren't making that much money. Now you're going to be making a whole lot more money, hopefully, and your future payments are going to go up considerably. Make sure that you budget for the correct amount. And this kind of brings me to step two, if you will. Budget the correct amount for your student debt. And it's regardless if it's federal or private, make sure that you have the correct amount that will come out of your bank account. This is just as important as your housing expense. Think of it as a fixed expense. When you're just starting out, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but your savings rate is the most important part of your investment plan. It's not what investments you have or what allocation you've made up. Hopefully you're not buying whole life or variable life insurance. Please, please don't do that. But your savings rate is the most important part of your investment plan. So setting up a foundation for responsible spending and investing your savings will help you reach that financial independence sooner than you really ever could imagine. Part of step two is don't inflate your lifestyle too much. I wrote an article on Kevin MD all about this and it, it was shared a ton and people really, I think, resonated with that because it's so easy to spend when you get that first attending paycheck to spend more than you've ever made. And you're like, wow, this is great. Let me go catch up on life. And it's, it's just not worth it. Understand how important savings rate is and don't inflate your lifestyle. Okay, so now that we've determined kind of what you're doing with your student debt, let's look kind of down the chain now at step number three. Let's look at your work-sponsored plan. This is your 401k or your 403b through work. Max this plan out, especially if they have a matching policy. And basically what that is is you're allowed to put up to $18,500 in 2018 into this plan a year. If your employer matches a certain percentage of that, that's essentially free money. There's no guarantees in life in anything, but that's a pretty nice thing. You're, you're basically getting free money with that match. Step four would be to not only just max out your work-sponsored plan, but to max out your IRAs. Your work allowed you to basically put in $18,500. Unfortunately, IRAs, the current limit is $5,500 or $458 a month if you want to put away monthly amounts. Both are fine. If you have an HSA, so if you have a high-deductible health plan through work and you have an HSA available, uh, current limits for a family are $6,900 for this year, 2018. This is where you could also fund that if you had extra funds. At this point, you've basically put away $24,000, or if you had the HSA and was able to put you know, $3,450 or $6,900 if you're a family, basically, you've put away a good chunk of change now, and you've already had a, a plan for your student debt. Now you really got to be looking also... One other thing was to build up an emergency fund. So 
If you don't have a high tolerance for risk, that's no problem. Start allocating the remainder of your savings to building up this fund or paying down debt. I typically say, you know, you need at least three months of expenses saved up, preferably in a high yield savings account, which as I mentioned, we're in this low rate environment. It's not going to make that big of a difference, but you know, yeah, Wells Fargo or B of A, you're probably making 0.001% and you know, a high yield savings account like Ally, you're maybe making 1.2. So it, it is a difference, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not life-changing money by any means. You'll notice that one thing that I did not include in here was saving for your children's education, because I believe that you can use debt to pay for that if you had to, but you cannot leverage and use debt to pay for your retirement. So make sure your loans are taken care of, your retirement's taken care of, and then look at saving for college. So those are my five steps, uh, you know, general five steps to this question. And again, if you want to read up a little bit more, I wrote a full 25 page ish white paper on this that you can find at financialresidency.com on the homepage. The next question is, do residents need life insurance? So another great question, even if it's a simple one. And generally, I believe that everyone early in their career needs some type of life insurance. If someone depends on your income, then you definitely need some amount of coverage. The amount of coverage you need is very specific to your financial situation. What does your work offer you? How much is your income? And how much do you have currently saved up for retirement or how much are your investments worth? And there's lots of calculators online that can help you determine this, but the coverage that you need is term insurance. It's not whole life. It's not variable life. It's term insurance. And what term insurance does is it offers protection for a certain specific period of time. If you happen to die within that period of time, the insurance company will pay your beneficiary, whoever you deem that is, the face value of the insurance policy. Term insurance is extremely affordable, especially if you're in good health and you're young. And as residents, you're basically at your most vulnerable time with respects to your career and your earning potential. You have a very long career ahead of you. You have very little assets. Usually you have extreme negative net worth several hundred thousand dollars, if not more from student debt, but you have all of this earning potential ahead of you. So term insurance is extremely important to protect that earnings power, especially again, if someone depends on your income. Again, you, you do not need whole life, variable life, universal life. It's just, those aren't needed. Physicians are typically targeted buy insurance agents and sold these policies often. I see it all the time with people coming in at Physician Wealth that have been sold one of these policies. And I I also see it firsthand. When my wife was in residency, I felt like she was being offered to buy one of these policies every few months. So be careful and make sure that you, if you are buying insurance, life insurance, buy term insurance. The next question is talking about tax efficient savings and investing. So after maxing out your Roth IRA, your employer sponsored 401k or 403b, what are the next most beneficial tax efficient ways to save and or invest money? 
So as I mentioned in uh, one of the previous questions, basically the first things you're going to do are contribute and max out to your 401k or your 403b, as well as maxing out your Roth IRA, whether it's direct or backdoor, it is really a great start to your investing career. If you again have a high deductible plan, this is something that you should have access to a health savings account or an HSA. And what the HSA does, it allows you to save money and actually invest it for medical expenses. And it's the only triple taxed advantaged account that I know of. Basically, you you get a tax break by contributing the money in. All the earnings as it grows over the years are exempt from taxes, just like your IRAs. And then when money is to be taken out for qualified medical expenses, it's not taxed currently in 2018, you are allowed to put up $3,450 if you're single or $6,900 if you're a family every year. You should also check and see outside of the 401k or 403b Roth IRAs and HSAs if your employer offers a 457b. This is a tax advantage retirement plan that's available for government or tax exempt organizations. It works very similar to a 401k or a 403b. And if you're offered both of these, you can actually contribute to the maximum of the plans. So you can max out your 401k or 403b at $18,500, as well as the 457b for another $18,500. There are no other additional tax-deferred accounts that you can technically contribute to after that, other than maybe an individual 401k if you happen to have 1099 income, uh, but then those limits would also be the same for the traditional 401k or 403b that you'd have through work if you were moonlighting, let's say. So basically your only other option is, is to open up a taxable account at your custodian of choice, whether it's TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or one of the robo-advisors, if, if that's your thing, or basically pay down debt. And that's about it. So the next question is again around life insurance. It actually says, when is the right time to invest in life insurance? And my answer is you never invest in life insurance. Life insurance is a product. It's something you're purchasing. So the best thing to remember with respects to insurance is that insurance is insurance. Investments are investments. Never mix the two. You're simply buying a product You're not investing in anything. You're buying a product as protection over your assets, not to increase your assets. And that is a very common misconception. And that is something that insurance salesmen sell a ton of. Basically, they say, this is going to help increase your assets, even though it's insurance. And usually it comes with high fees and generally they're terrible products. Instead of just purchasing some protection like term insurance, Do not go out and try to invest in life insurance. So the next question is, a resident has made the prudent decision to open a Roth IRA. What sort of funds should he or she invest in? Specifically, what is an index fund? What are stocks? And what are bonds? Okay, so there's a few definitions that you're going to need to know when you're starting out your investing career. A stock is basically buying an investment in a company in a very small fractional way. Think of it as, or known as, buying a share of stock in a public company. 
These shares entitle you to the ownership benefits, so voting, dividends, etc. And they can fluctuate in price based on a ton of different factors. Shares are traded on an exchange and the price can again go up and down based on what others value the company at. At its core, you're essentially buying an investment in a company and are a part owner in that company. A bond is not equity, like stocks are on the equity side of the balance sheet. A bond is actually you're buying the debt of a company. So companies can go out and issue a bond that investors can go buy that would entitle them to get back their money plus interest. Not only do companies have debt, but the government has debt. And that also can be purchased or invested in. And the value of bonds, uh, similar to stocks, even though they're different, can fluctuate based on a ton of different factors. Mutual funds, you may actually be aware of several mutual fund companies like Vanguard. They essentially create mutual funds. And what that is, is a collection of stocks that the fund companies have purchased in order to achieve a specific or certain goal. You're buying shares of the mutual fund, not the individual stock itself. And the mutual fund is the owner of the stocks that the fund company has purchased. It allows an investor to obtain a higher diversification. Basically, you're owning a lot of stocks versus a few uh, for a much, much smaller investment than if they needed to go out and purchase all of these stocks on their own. Mutual funds give thousands of investors in the fund, essentially, they, they basically pull their investment capital together to achieve this higher diversification than what they could do on their own for a more affordable cost. An index fund is a type of fund that is designed to track the components of a market index. This could be the Dow, the S&P 500, the total stock market, the total bond market, total, you know, international minus US, all emerging markets. There's so many things that it could track. And these funds tend to be highly diversified. They have extremely low turnover within the fund. And generally, because they have low turnover and require, if you want to call it less maintenance, they have significantly lower expense ratios compared to other funds, which might also look like active funds, people trying to beat the market, whereas index funds typically try to mimic market performance. And that's why this is a form of passive investing. And I did a, an entire show with Bobby Lee, and you can listen to it on the Financial Resident Podcast. It's episode number three for more information. The next question is around, should residents buy or rent a home during residency? And what are the benefits or the drawbacks of that approach? This is kind of a tough question to answer. And I did write a post uh, that I'll link in the show notes on if you should rent or buy a home in residency. But really, this is a tough question to answer without knowing all the financial situation and details that the resident is in. Uh, looking back when my wife and I, uh, well, my wife was in residency and I was tagging along with her. If I knew that we were going to stay in an area longer than five years, you know, we had a lot of reserves to cover any of the unforeseen expenses that come with owning a home, which trust me, there's a lot of them. And we were in a position to pay a mortgage and all of our fixed expenses while still saving a bunch of money, then we probably would have done it. But we were in a high cost of living area. We weren't making that much money and really none of those factors held true. So we didn't buy in residency. We actually did buy in fellowship and I'm going to 
get into that whole story, a uh, real fascinating story of how we've essentially paid off our debt by through real estate um, in an upcoming episode. But really, it comes back to in this question, you know, what is the financial situation that you're in? If we did stretch to get into a house, it probably would have been amazing. We've been greatly rewarded for making a kind of a poor choice. And we definitely would have been uh, house poor if we had done this. But that just wasn't our thing. It wasn't something that we were, that was super important to us at the time. And really we were, we were trying to get through residency and, and have it be as simple and painless as we could. And, uh, I think investing in a house would have been tough. It would have been tough to do if, if we weren't in a high cost of living area, it might've been different, but, uh, living in Southern California, uh, made it, made it a lot tougher. So I'm a huge fan of real estate investing. Don't get me wrong, but you know, with little assets, a little bit of time and a ton of debt, it just didn't make sense for us to do that. And I would assume that most residents are in that position. So the next question was someone was prepping for a meeting uh, with their soon to be or potential financial advisor. And what kind of prep would be most helpful prior to meeting with a financial advisor? What are the top three questions you should ask an advisor at your first meeting? Uh, Dr. Dahlia, the white coat investor was on this panel as well. And he had some really good questions. How do you pay for your advice? How much do I pay you for your advice? And what services do you offer for that payment? And I think that that was a great answer. Essentially, I would start with how do you get paid? Read through the ADV 2A. That is what all investment advisors need to have on file with the state or the SEC, the regulators. And essentially, it is designed by law to tell you every way that they can make money in plain English. So regardless of what the potential advisor actually tells you, read through their entire ADV 2A because it will tell you everything you need to know about how they actually get paid. The second one I would be asking is, are you fee only? Or even ask them if they're a flat fee only. But basically, only choose a fee only advisor. And again, if you can find a flat fee only that's even better. Fee-only advisors only make up about 3% of any professional that calls themselves an advisor, financial advisor, financial planner, investment advisor. There's so many different names, it's ridiculous, but less than 3% are, are fee-only. The rest of them are fee-based. And I know that I talked with Tim Baker of Script Financial in a previous episode, I believe it was episode number four, about uh, finding an advisor you can trust. So go back and check out that episode if that is something that interests you. And when I refer to flat fee only, that means that the advisor only charges a flat monthly or quarterly fee to work with them and do not charge an assets under management fee. So think of it as a retainer, but it also includes investment management over your investments in addition to full comprehensive financial planning. And this is really rare in the industry. It's something that I do over at Physician Wealth because I believe it's in the best interest for the client. But not all advisors do that. And it doesn't mean that fee only, uh, if they do charge AUM, are bad people. Really, they're almost all unicorns if you think about it. But less than 3% are fee only. And fee only is the only way to go when you're looking for an advisor. One little quick note to see if someone is fee only or not. The quickest way is if they can sell you insurance or if they can quote unquote help you with insurance, they're fee-based. The last question or third question that I would ask, it wouldn't be the last one, but for the sake of this answer, it was the third one, 
was why do you work with physicians and what percentage of your client base are physicians? So you want to work with someone who not only understands what you're going through, but someone who provides guidance to situations that you're going through all day long. If they hold themselves out as specializing in working with physicians, why did they choose to work with physicians? I'd like to know that. And, and they should honestly know a lot more about student loans than you do. So I would also be trying to test their knowledge on student loan advising and student loan debt. The next question is, how much should a resident keep in a savings account for emergencies? They followed it up with, what are the best places to start a savings account? Should a resident max his or her Roth IRA at the beginning of the year, even if that requires dipping into their emergency fund? And so my answer looks at this and says, one, if you're trying to save for an emergency fund, but you're racking up credit card debt, pay off the credit card debt first. And then if you're amazing and putting away extra money, try to max out the Roth IRA first. Don't dip into your emergency fund. Just just don't get into a habit of dipping into it ever, unless it's a true emergency. Contribute whatever you can into the Roth at the start of the year without touching the emergency savings. And then either contribute monthly the remaining amount and, you know, kind of say, oh, I've got, you know, 4,000 left and I'm going to divide it by 11 and put that in. Or you can essentially just say, I'm going to save up only and contribute only $458 a month, which will allow you to hit the 5,500 in the year towards the Roth. And it'll actually allow you to dollar cost average into the market, which really isn't a bad strategy. This will essentially allow you to contribute throughout the year while not dipping into your emergency savings. Then to touch on like where you should put the emergency savings, I know I did a little bit already, but you know, try to get at least three months of expenses in the savings account. And it could be a high yield savings account, again, low interest rates. So you're only going to be getting 1.25%. Like it's a place like Ally versus uh, Wells or B of A at the 0.01, but it doesn't hurt. But don't dip into your emergency fund unless it's a true emergency. And the last question that I'm going to highlight on the show today is budgeting as a new attending. So in planning a budget as a soon-to-be new attending, what are the typical rule of thumb guidelines for a percentage or amount to spend on rent or housing? And obviously this will depend on your geography, your retirement savings or other slash emergency savings. So looking at expenses and savings as two separate buckets is what I do. In the expense bucket, you've got your fixed expenses and your variable expenses. So fixed expenses tend to be expenses that cost the same amount or very close to the same amount every month. This could be rent or mortgage. This could be utilities. This is student loans. These expenses are usually paid on a regular basis and are very difficult or somewhat challenging to change. When you look at cutting spending and you'll read a lot of stuff out there and people recommend to cut out that Starbucks coffee or to eat out less, while those are generally good advice, it it makes a very small dent unless you do a lot of things and change your lifestyle drastically. Whereas if you just look to cut spending in fixed expenses, it actually could go a whole lot further than cutting a few of those smaller variable expenses. Generally, I'd say fixed expenses, again, you know, it's going to be your mortgage, student debt, insurance premiums, utilities, things like that, should not represent more than 50% of your take-home pay. Variable expenses 
represent the daily expenses or purchases that you can make. This is dining out, entertainment, shopping, things like that. Generally, I would say that they should not represent more than 25% of your take-home pay. So if you stayed with me this far, 50% to fixed, 25% to variable, leaving 25% to allocate towards savings and retirement. Now remember, I'm talking about take-home pay. So your 401k or 403b contributions that you're maxing out or you should be maxing out have already been taken out and have already been invested through your work plans. We're talking about the money that hits your checking account every month in the form of your paycheck. So 25% of that amount should be allocated towards savings or retirement goals. Savings could be something like building up an emergency fund or saving up for a down payment on the home that you're looking at. And when I refer to retirement savings, again, I'm not referring to the 401k or 403b because that's being taken out pre-taxed. I'm looking at what actually hits your bank account with take-home pay. This would be things like your IRA or funding in HSA. So I know this is a bit different than what I usually do, and I hope you guys enjoyed this type of thing. It's definitely not going to be the norm, but I was honored to be invited to be an expert panelist on the New England Journal of Medicine's Financial Planning 101 series. And I thought that a lot of you would really like to hear what some of your peers were asking. I think they were great questions, and I highlighted a bunch of them, but there were many more that were on there. And so I encourage you to go to the show notes and check it out on financialresidency.com and click on the link and go to the uh, NEJM uh, website and read the rest of the questions along with the answers to the questions I was answering from some of the other expert panelists. Next week, we're going to be talking with Doug Krause uh, from UMB uh, Bank, and Doug is an, a mortgage expert, and there is so much great information inside there. I get questions all the time about physician loans and traditional conventional loans and what they're looking for and how they do them. And Doug knocks it out of the park. So next week is a great episode all about the mortgage side of real estate. Have a great week. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.